Welcome to the Rob Seco Field Ready Podcast with your host, Jim Robinson. Hello, and welcome back to the Rob Seco Field Ready Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Robinson. Earlier this year, we had the privilege of hosting Scott Harris, brand lead for the Master's Choice brand within Rob Seco. And what we're going to do today is play an episode from Scott and I, where we discuss how the hybrid selection process for the Master's Choice brand differs from that of the rest of the industry with selects for commodity grain portfolios. Anyway, go ahead and take a listen and enjoy. Welcome to the MC Podcast. My name is Scott Harris. My whole life's been dairy farming. Grew up in it. Thank you for having me on your podcast. Appreciate that very much. It's been exciting to watch you guys work. <laughs> so I'd like to welcome Mr. Jim Robinson. Hey, Scott. Thanks for having me on the show. Yes, sir. It is It is good that we don't do this by video, but I can actually see you, so it's good to see you. It's <laughs> been a while. You too. <laughs> yep. Absolutely. So, yeah. So, Jim, why don't we kind of start off and you tell us who Rob Seco is, uh, who you are, and uh, mm-hmm. we'll go start there. Absolutely. So, Rob Seco is an independent seed company uh, based out of Elkhorn, Nebraska, so the eastern part of Nebraska. Uh, we have a long history in the seed industry going back to 1888, but really this iteration of Rob Seco uh, started in 2013, uh, really first crop year 2014, and uh, uh, we focus on uh, corn hybrids from nearly the Canadian border down to Mexico, and then with the addition of Master's Choice to the family, uh, we extended to Canada. And, down to Arizona, California. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. So, in case you didn't pick up on that, in case you didn't know, uh, Rob Seco owns Master's Choice. They uh, own the brand and the, and the company, and so uh, we've been part of the Rob Seco family since uh, about August, I guess it was, mm-hmm. uh, when everything kind of was finally transferred over. And so, uh, so we have a, a mutual relationship here, obviously. And Jim is is very much serving the role of helping us make sure our lineup is. Uh, different and diversified and and uh, it's a little bit different animal rob seco was i'm sure in and still is in some dairy pockets and sells some some silage products but primarily uh master's choice was brought in as a completely different line and different purpose is that a fair way of saying that jim that's absolutely the right thing so yeah where rob seco predominantly focuses on grain hybrids we do have a couple of silage hybrids within the rob seco lineup uh, the Master's Choice lineup is is purely focused on animal nutrition uh, with a heavy focus on dairy. Yep. And so uh, kind of, you know, one of the things that I think kind of worried maybe some of the outlets that we deal with was what that might look like for a future. But actually, have they, as they've learned, and I've been doing calls recently with our outlets, and they all have been very appreciative of the fact that we've stuck true to that. And it looks like we will stick true to that, that it's going to be a different focus and kind of maintaining that livestock focus. And so a lot of value there, but let's just dive off into it. I know that, uh, you know, we try, Jim, we do try to keep this podcast to 20 to 30 minutes. Cause I know you mm-hmm. can talk corn genetics for about 17 hours, probably with, uh, <laughs> with no break. So, uh, oh, we're yeah. going to, we're, we're going to limit that, but so when you're looking from your side of things, when you're looking at a hybrid for master's choice, um, what do you look for that maybe differentiates a little bit from maybe what you're looking at from the Rob Seco side of things? Right, absolutely. So you know, the general purpose of the hybrids for master's choice differ from Rob Seco in that most of the Rob Seco hybrids are focused on grain that will be harvested by a farmer 
and eventually taken to an elevator. A lot of that either gets fed or shipped overseas into uh, you know shipping containers. So what you look for is uh, master's choice hybrids predominantly being used for silage, uh, the hybrid that has excellent digestibility for the animal uh, with great nutritional uh, characteristics. Tonnage does matter. It's, it's not the primary focus, but it is a component of the focus. Whereas for Rob Seco, we're looking for hybrids that'll stand late into the season, dry down in the field, have higher test weight, and will be suitable for uh, storage in a bin and eventually sale to a ethanol plant, shipping uh, company, whatever it might be. Right. Right. And so in that, typically you're going to generally see, I mean, not, not necessarily a hard and fast rule, but you're going to generally see a lower test weight in, in a lot of your master's choice type hybrids. Is that a fair statement? That's a fair assessment. Yeah. Because a, a big part of the uh, nutritional quality and, and energy that comes from the plants, it comes from the grain itself. And so if the grain's too hard, too dense, it will pass right through the animal as opposed to something that we're looking for with the master's choice lineup is that we don't want anything going out the back end of the animal if we can avoid it. And so a softer, less dense, less dense starch will typically do that for us. Absolutely. And, and that's where the, you know, it's been a little, it's, it's a bit of a challenge for us in the aspect of trying to compete because I think that sometimes there's a natural assumption by a dairy farmer, I should say by a farmer, um, that yield is all that matters. And while you don't want to take a backseat to yield, we have to look at more than that, particularly from a nutrition side of things. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's actually just a different type of yield. So you're looking for the right. choice lineup is, that's a good is point. the milk that you can produce. And so that's the yield that we want to maximize, not necessarily the bushels per acre. Mm-hmm. Yep, and we even want to dive off into specifically, you know, we're looking at yield from a component standpoint as well. So mm-hmm. so really at the end of the day, um, we have to understand and get farmers to understand that not all starch is created equal. Mm-hmm. Um, not all starch ends up serving the same purpose. purpose. Some of it, uh, you know, doesn't actually get utilized. And so that's what we got to make sure we're getting the stuff that actually gets utilized by the animal. If you're taking that all the way to dry grain and you're not feeding it, it doesn't matter. And mm-hmm. so just kind of identifying those differences. So, yeah. So uh, actually, if I could expand on that, Scott, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, as, as you look at what, what occurs in the industry because of the downstream aspects and the primary people purchasing grain in the industry are generally the ones that, that dictate the direction that the industry goes. And so if you think about what grain buyers want, they want grain that will store well in a bin uh, so less damage that it moves from the combine into the grain cart, from the grain cart into the bin, from the bin into the truck, from the truck into uh, the elevator, and from the elevator to the train, to the shipping container, then overseas or wherever else it may go. And so a harder, denser grain, you can fit more of it into uh, a single container. But not only that, you also tend to get less damage with a harder, denser grain than you do with a softer uh, type of starch that's more likely to uh, fracture as each of those transfers occur. And so while it's not as good for the animal, it is better for the grain trading industry to have a harder, denser grain that, that ships better and transfers better. Absolutely. And, uh, that's a, yep. Go ahead. Oh, and it, you know, that's, that's not necessarily an easy characteristics to breed for. I mean, I, I have an education in genetics and, and everything and grain 
characteristics are quantitative traits, so they're not necessarily things that you can easily select for. It takes a lot of different genes contributing into the characteristics of those kernels of the starch itself. And so uh, you tend to, over time, get a bias in the industry toward one type of grain versus another. Right. And so that's what we're seeing right now. We're seeing the industry as a whole uh, going kind of one direction. And, you know, we're trying to identify something almost in a completely opposite direction that we want to utilize for the master's choice lineup. And so mm-hmm. there's some challenges that come with that, though, right? Because you're kind of hitting on it. So let's just kind of dive off into that a little bit more. What are some of the challenges from your standpoint when mm-hmm. you're trying to look at uh some completely you're looking kind of two different directions but one of the biggest factors has to be cost Mm -hmm. for sure so you know the the cost of of finding developing commercializing master choice hybrids is you know while we work with a lot of different originators so breeders licensing groups whatever they may be you know you have to sift through a lot of material to find what exactly works for the master's choice lineup because they're selecting for things that work more broadly for their customer base and we are selecting for things that work for our customer base which which may differ so there's a significant cost in the trialing testing evaluating and and eventually commercialization of these products and so uh you know we may not necessarily find uh, things from one licensing group, but we still have to check because eventually we may find something there and another breeding program will be pretty prolific in, in the uh, master's choice lineup. And it's just a cost of doing business to find those right hybrids. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, and the hard part is, you know, and this is what, you know, I, I use, I mean, I say this across the country when I go to meetings is yield, and agronomy is is going to be the first lens that you're going to look through. I don't care which direction you're going with it. When you're talking about if you're going to take it the master's choice direction or it's a better fit for, for grain side, Rob Seco side, whatever it may be, it still has to be able to yield. It has to be able to handle agronomic pressures. Mm-hmm. Because even on the livestock side, even on the nutrition side, it doesn't do any good if you have an amazing feeding product, but you don't have any of it. <laughs> yeah. You know, if you can't yield any of it, that's not going to do you any good. And also, part of that is the cost side because you do add layers of testing when you're talking about silage hybrids, as mm-hmm. far as you know, sampling. You know, if you were to have a a very large uh, plot. Uh, you're talking $35 minimum per sample to do just a standard test that you wouldn't have to do on the grain side. Right. And so there's just a lot of additional costs there. Oh, for sure. And, and, you know, doing those tests, you know, it's critical to commercializing the products, but, you know, as you said, agronomically, you know, you have to test across a broad geography in order to understand the hybrid's true performance or what it may or may not be susceptible to. Cause like you said, you know, if you don't have any, thing to actually feed you know through the animal then that it just doesn't work no matter how digestible it might be and uh so disease tolerance is a big portion of that you know we have plenty of hybrids we've evaluated that have fantastic digestibility but they die too early and so you just don't get enough enough of it yeah because that's the other side of this too is that even you know even on from a silage side of things you have, I mean, obviously we said it doesn't have to stand as long as a grain hybrid, typically speaking. But you also, particularly 
don't want something that's going, or at least you be, need to be able to know that it dries down very fast because moisture is the biggest factor in the quality of a new, of a hybrid. Mm-hmm. It, I don't care how good it is. If you let it get too dry, you've cost yourself a lot of money and, and a lot of energy. And so, mm-hmm. uh, understand, you know, evaluating all that. I mean, that's just every, every time there's just an added layer, you, you're adding time, you're adding cost. And it's just a big factor. And so the to, to take on this concept of identifying something very special and different isn't just isn't just uh, words. There's a lot of action money that goes into it that you're having to mm-hmm. put behind it. Oh, for sure. For sure. There are, there are plenty of things we would love to commercialize, but they just don't quite fit. And so it's exactly. Um, yep. So that's a great segue into why don't they fit? Because the question is, how difficult is it, and I don't know that you need to put a scale on this, but how difficult is it right now, given that the industry is mainly going in a different direction, how difficult is it to identify those hybrids right now for them for a Master Choice lineup? Yeah, I mean, I, let me use an example within the Rob Seco lineup of a hybrid that if you looked at the hybrid, you'd think this would be a great Master's Choice hybrid. This should go in the Master's Choice lineup, but ultimately it, it shouldn't once you look a little bit deeper. So Rob Seco has a hybrid that we use for grain that we call RC5323. It's a fantastic hybrid. It, it has plenty of grain yield, a ton of grain yield, and it stands really well. It has really high test weight. But as soon as you chop it and start evaluating the quality of the, the silage that comes off of that hybrid, you find that it's not very digestible. Part of that's the hybrid stands so well that, that it's just so lignified. It's not di- yeah. mm-hmm, Absolutely. It's not digestible. And the high test weight of the grain itself doesn't make it break down very well within the animal. It's a it's really high test weight, harder grain type of a hybrid. And so it just ultimately becomes a below average silage product. And so you know, while it will have a ton of tonnage, it's not going to necessarily result in a lot of milk production. And so that's, that's the challenge when you walk through small plot trials and you're evaluating brand new crosses to, you know, something that looks good in the field isn't necessarily going to be the product that fits in the portfolio. Absolutely. Because you're looking at, so you're looking at, you know, starch digestibility, fiber digestibility, you're looking mm-hmm. at flex hybrids. That's a major concept for master choice is a little more flex, a little slightly lower population, mm-hmm. uh, kind of giving the plant the ability to kind of naturally do what it wants to do and just total plant energy from top to bottom. And so um, that's a lot of stuff that you're having to look at and consider. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you have an industry that overall is typically tending to go the other way, that adds another layer of difficulty to the whole process for us. Oh, for sure. And if, if I could expand on that ear flex component, I mean, that that's a big deal. It's, it's not just ear flex, it's, it's total plant flex, it, right. you know, how we want to define it. So, you know, as you go lower in population, the plants compensate having more space to draw in sunlight and, you know, you get a, a larger ear, more grain per ear, but also you get a larger rind on the, the plant itself too. So there's the fewer lignin or less lignin to have to uh, pass through the animal. But, you know, you look at the industry and, and in the early 1970s, there's a real inflection point on yield across the United States. So yield per acre. And that's about when B73 Missouri 17 was commercialized. 
And the big deal about that hybrid that made it so successful within the industry was the fact that it had a really vertical canopy and tolerated a higher plant population. So people started pushing populations little by little and going from 14 to 18,000 plants per acre all the way up to where we are today with some parts of the country planting over 40,000 plants per acre. And so you lose a lot of, of flex germplasm over that 40, 50 year period. And we still have to spend a lot of effort to find those hybrids that will flex not only in the ear, but in the plant as well. Right. Yeah, because that, that is a big factor, um, particularly, um, I think, in the dairy side of things, they, they tend to, are willing, or I should say they're more willing to plant at a lower population, and if you can get them to understand that concept, it makes a big difference. But mm-hmm. even, uh, but the expression of that um, has been visual primarily up until a few years ago when Master's Choice did a uh, population study and we actually looked at the sweet spot you know what is kind of the sweet spot of okay maximizing my yield by having more plants out there but at what point do I b- break that off to where I'm actually losing a lot more nutrition fiber side starch side both uh, both kind of both aspects uh, mm-hmm. to where it wouldn't have mattered if I yielded more I actually didn't yield more at the end of the day as far as nutrients go and yeah. so, uh, you know, that we've, we're getting there. We've identified, I mean, I think we've got a pretty good feel for that. Um, but the more we can continue to develop that and identify that, the, the better that's going to be for all of us, for sure, without a doubt. Um, mm-hmm. So when I think we've kind of hit on a lot of this, but um, why is it important uh, for independent companies like Rob Seco uh, to kind of keep diversity in the in the portfolio. Why does that matter, you know, to the farm, to the industry? Why is it important? Yeah, it's, it's really important because, you know, as, as you look at what has happened to corn hybrids over the years, you know, we've already talked about the higher test weight, the better standability for grain hybrids, meaning higher lignin content and less digestible plant material, you know, but also, you know, you, you start to see the exact same plant styles, the exact same grain types out of, you know, every hybrid in the industry. And that's just not good overall for different end market uses of corn. I mean, corn is used for all sorts of things, anywhere from food grade corn that's made into tortillas, chips, whatever else might be, to ethanol production, to grain for feed, to silage for uh, dairies and as well as beef, which are actually two different silage targets on, on each of those. So, you know, as the germplasm converges in terms of what it does in the industry, you lose the ability to maximize uh, the use of that, that feed, you know, in the animal. So it takes more feed to result in the same amount of milk or this, more feed to result in the same amount of beef produced. And, uh, you know, that's, that's why we need to continue maintaining diversity in the industry. Yeah. And especially particularly as an independent company, Mm -hmm. um, it's important that we have a little more control over our futures, uh, Mm -hmm. than, than what, uh, we would be kind of limited to in the industry. So I think it's important factor to, to bring that out too. So, so as far as when you're, when you are kind of going through the process, um, what is kind of the last thing to kind of wrap it up from a genetic side of things um, is I'm trying to figure out how to word this. So if you were going to really deep dive into how long it takes a, a hybrid to get developed, um, mm-hmm. 
is there any difference in things as far as when you're going one direction versus the other? Or what's the overall standard? I think that maybe a lot of people don't realize the amount of time it takes to get something yeah. into market. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, the, just to kind of hit it right off the bat, the hybrids and inbreds who are advancing into our portfolios right now are the result of initial crosses made back in 2012, 2013. And so it has been eight years in development and trialing and stage advancements that uh, takes you know you from create, starting the process of creating a new inbred to commercializing a new hybrid with those things. So you know, there's a lot of time, energy, talent, trialing, you know, really environments that go into developing these new inbreds and new hybrids. And so, you know, we are looking through, you know, everything over a period of several years. You know, there are some lines that uh, we've looked at for several years that finally find the right partner to make a, a commercial hybrid. There may be aspects we really, really like about it, but it needs a, a new male inbred to bring it along other characteristics to make it commercially viable. And so, you know, the, the time and effort that, that goes into trialing, evaluating, and ultimately seeing where a product fits within the portfolio, yeah, that's what the majority of my time and, and the product team here at Rob Seco, what our time is spent doing. And, uh, you know, that's, that's ultimately what will deliver a commercial portfolio in the future. Yeah, I think that it's just not probably generally, and I don't mean this as a bad thing to any farmers listening, but I don't think it's probably appreciated how long that process and difficult that process is. And, and there's a lot you can, you can, I would assume not a plant geneticist by any means, but I would assume you can put a fair amount of um, trust in the family line. But at the end of the day, you really don't know how the crosses are going to turn out. You have mm -hmm. to go see them. You have to look at the data. You've got to uh, get out there and, and see what's going on. You can't just go by uh, just that factor alone. Exactly. I mean, even with today's machine learning algorithms, with the ability to sequence the genomes of each individual inbred, you know, there's still so much diversity within the corn genome that we just can't know all of the interactions between those genes and the environments that they work in and the heterosis that occurs when crossing one inbred to another inbred to get a hybrid out of the two. So you've got to get your eyes on it in the field. You've got to take yields out. You've got to chop. You've got to you know, measure quality. All those things go into ultimately advancing hybrids. Yeah, and you've got to try it in a bunch of different parts of the country as well. Yeah, because it's going to act a lot different in uh, eastern Pennsylvania than it's going to act in central Wisconsin, right? There's a good chance that it will, anyway. For sure, for sure. Yeah, it's so, not very many hybrids can move from from Ohio to Colorado. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so then, with all of that, and thinking about building two lineups, then along with your with your other responsibilities, I guess the big question is, when do you sleep, Jim? <laughs> you know, I don't have very many hobbies. <laughs> <laughs> this is your hobby, right? This is yeah. my hobby. <laughs> well, I do want to thank you for joining, Jim. Any other final thoughts for us before I kind of close things out that we didn't hit on that you think is important? No, you know, I think I think as we get into later in January and in February, we'll be announcing new advancements into the portfolio and what the portfolio will look like in the future. So make sure you stay tuned and, and look forward to what, what all comes through. I hope you enjoyed that episode and thank you to the Master's Choice team for having me on to talk about how hybrid selection differs for the Master's Choice lineup compared to Rob Seco and most of the rest of the industry. Selecting specifically for silage specific hybrids that have high feed value and maximize the output of your animal 
It's really what the Master's Choice lineup is all about. As always, be sure to tune in on the 1st and 15th of every month for new episodes. And until then, stay field ready. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Rob Seco Field Ready Podcast. Join us next time to be field ready. A Huda Media Production.